week we were set straight on our purpose and mission uh, in life, and uh, as Paul brings forth the salutation that the reason why he serves, the reason why he does all things, is for the sake uh, of all the Christians whom uh, God has in, in his family. And so now we move to the, if you will, the thesis of the whole uh, book and why Titus has been left on the island of Crete and what he is to accomplish. And today we want to talk on the subject of leadership. I want you to turn to Titus chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 8 this morning. Uh, And as you do that, make sure you pull out your um, sermon outline sheet and uh, make sure that you are following along. Now, I'm going to give you a uh, little gift, uh, and that is I want you to scratch out point number 4. Everybody say amen. Yeah, it doesn't mean you're getting out any earlier than you thought you were going to. It just means that we're going to address that next week. And so uh, just uh, scratch that out. We'll address that next week as we come back to this text. But we want to talk on the subject of leadership this morning. And leadership is of great importance. Uh, wherever leadership is at uh, is going to tell you where the people that are following that leadership will inevitably be. You show me a godly mom and dad, and I will inevitably show you uh, a healthy and vibrant family. Uh, you show me a, uh, a healthy leadership team overseeing a corporation, and I will usually be able to show you a healthy business uh, that is doing its job and, and taking care of the needs that it needs to address. Likewise, in the church, you show me a healthy leadership of, of a church, and I will show you a, a healthy church. It is of vast uh, importance and is vital. For Village Bible Church, if we desire to accomplish our mission and vision to be led by a group of godly leaders. In fact, I want to throw up a slide here, even before we get into our text, of the importance of uh, strong and biblical leadership within any local church. This is what uh, this uh, individual says about it. The local church is the hope of the world, and its future rests primarily in the hands of its leaders. The outcome of the redemptive drama being played out on the planet Earth will be determined by how well church leaders lead. Go ahead and flip it there. He goes on to say Romans 12, 8 tells us that those of us who have the gift of leadership, that we better, uh, the gift of leadership, that we better sit up and take notice. We better lead with diligence. But why? Because the church, the bride of Christ, upon which the eternal destiny of the world depends, will either flourish or falter largely on the basis of how we lead. Leaders must yield fully to God. Then, after yielding fully to God, he goes on to say that they must cast powerful, biblical, God-honoring visions. Go ahead. They must build effective, loving, clearly focused teams. They must fire up Christ's followers to give their absolute best for God. And they must insist with pit-bull determination that the gospel be preached the lost be found, the believers equipped, the poor served, and the lonely enfolded into community. And finally, they need to do all that and not allow God to get all the credit for it. Whether you're a newcomer to any kind of church or been around for a while, churches must be led. Like any good team, any business, any organization, a church is, is really just a family. It's a family that has uh, leaders and a family that has followers. And uh, within any church, uh, you need to establish the right form of government. And so we're going to see what um, Paul tells Titus this morning of what is of the greatest importance in his task on the island of Crete. So let us look at Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. And I'll ask for you to stand as we read God's word, and then we'll quickly ask a blessing for our time and move on. This is what it says. The reason, Paul says, I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Let's pray. Lord, again, we just ask for your blessing on our time. I pray that we would be reminded of what you desire for your leaders in your church uh, to do, how they ought to live. And Lord, I pray for the elders of this church that we would be men uh, that uh, live who are above reproach, 
who show themselves not to just live for you when people are watching at church, but every day of our lives. Lord, I also pray for those who follow the lead of that elder team, Lord, and I thank you for the joy they have made it uh, in serving them, Lord, and I also pray that they would continue to know and understand uh, what good and godly elders look like so they can continue to appoint those uh, who need to serve so that they may bring honor and glory to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As you sit down on this focus of leadership, the first thing that Paul tells Titus is that he needs to do uh, one very important thing. Now his job is to straighten out that which was left unfinished. But notice what he needs to do first. And that's my first point this morning is that if we want to be set straight on leadership, we must first of all follow the correct form of church leadership. We must first of all follow the correct form of church leadership. Go ahead and put that in your outlines this morning. The correct form of church leadership. In verse 5, Paul tells us the following. Notice what he says. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed. Now he uses the term elder, and we're going to learn about what this elder is, but I want to give a definition on the word elder. So can we throw that uh, slide up there? An elder we're going to learn is a spiritually mature man, knowledgeable in the scriptures, who is officially recognized by a local church to work with other elders in exercising oversight and shepherding God's flock. So every time you hear the term elder, this is who we are talking about. If you haven't seen that definition before, go ahead and write it down. It's important that we recognize it because this is the role that Titus is to fill uh, in every one of the churches that he's a part of. Now, in Crete, where this, uh, where this man Titus was at, some say had more than a hundred different churches in its midst. And his job was to establish the right form of leadership. And that's what we want to understand. Once we know who an elder is, we then must make sure that we follow the correct form of church leadership. That's point number one this morning. It's in this verse that Paul gives us the commission of Titus and his role of what he was left to do. Now notice what he says in verse 5. He says, I have left you in Crete that you might straighten out what was left unfinished. Well, what type of stuff was he supposed to do? What was left unfinished? As we look at Paul's original writing in the original Greek, this is a word, it's very hard to, to uh, pronounce. It is epidortho. I could say it fast and it'll sound like I'm just making up a word, but it's a compound word that speaks of the following. It literally means to straighten out, to set right, to complete, and to take care of unfinished reforms. In fact, when you say this word, epidortho, doesn't sound like I'm saying anything, I know. It is the word that we get the word orthodontist and the word orthopedics from. And it literally means to set straight broken bones. The reason why we talk about an orthodontist is because what does an orthodontist do? He straightens out crooked teeth. And so what we learn is, is it's not just unfinished business as the NIV translates it for us, but it is things that have gone crooked that need to now be straightened out. We live in a crooked world. We live in a world that says that we can do it our way all the time, any way, any time we want to do it. And as a result of that, as we come in with our crooked ways, the church's job is to establish the straight way. It's to establish the way we ought to go, to straighten out that which is crooked. The number one role of elders is to accomplish that work, to see that the church, the living organism of God, is allowing for the straightening of our crooked ways and our crooked lives to be made right again. And so the elder's job and his job was to appoint people who within individual churches would be able to accomplish this type of thing. And so as a result of that, we establish elders. Now, it's important that we understand this because during the time in Crete, we know that Titus is dealing with a, a church that had grown numerically. 
Now, where did these Cretans learn about Jesus? We know that uh, there were Cretans in the crowd when Peter speaks on the day of Pentecost. And, of course, they would have probably gone home after meeting Jesus and been a part of that great miraculous time, not meeting Jesus, meeting Peter and seeing the work of Jesus through the apostles. They go home, and churches, no doubt, groups of Christians was beginning to grow. Then Paul goes there, and he ministers, and at some point after his leaving, he learns that things aren't going the way they need to. Things are starting to get crooked. Things are starting to get out of whack. And so he sends Titus to clear things up, to right the ship. And the first thing that he is supposed to do, notice what it says. The text says, the reason why I left you in Crete was that you might start evangelism classes in Crete. Is that what he says? Help me out here. You guys shouldn't be the quiet ones. The first group was awake today. Does he say that in the text? No. Does he say start discipleship classes? Does he say build a building or write a church constitution? He says, appoint elders. The first thing that any church needs to do before it gets involved in the program of its ministries and all of that is to have the right leaders in place. It's key. It's of great importance. And this is the first thing that Paul tells Timothy to do. Now, some of us say, well, we don't need leadership. We, we can figure things all out on our own. As Americans, we don't like the idea of leadership. In fact, I saw a Wall Street Journal poll that said 11% of our country thinks that we should get a whole new set of leaders and get rid of every one of the ones we have. And we saw some of that in this last election, the idea of people just being unhappy with their leaders. And a lot of times the reason why is because we always think we can do a better job, and we can thank the founding fathers for that, because they instilled in us the idea of individual, individuality within who we are and the idea of individual choice. And so many times we are discontented with the idea of who leads us. Another reason why isn't just because of us as individuals, but because we've been a part of churches or we've been involved in scenarios where leadership has really hurt people. They've been just downright rotten in the way that they have led. And so as a result of that, we want nothing to do with leadership. We want to push away from it. But this is what Paul says. He says, you've got to do it and you've got to establish it within each church. Now notice, he says that you need to uh, appoint elders in every town. Well, we talked about the definition of elders, but what are they and, and who are they and what are they to do? I want you to turn for a moment to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. If you're in the book of Titus, go to your right uh, a couple books, and you'll find the short book of 1 Peter, written by the Apostle Peter, of course. And this is what Peter says, uh, and it's of great importance for us uh, this morning. And this is what he says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. He says, To the elders among you, there's that word again, I appeal to you as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering, and one who will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock, that, you, that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Peter uses three terms that are interchangeable when it comes to understanding this correct form of church leadership. The first one is, is a title of that of maturity. Write that in your outlines. He uses the term elder. It is the Greek word presbyteros. Presbyteros is where uh, we get the English word presbyterian. Okay? Presbyterian, of course, is a name for a denomination of churches. And the reason why they're named Presbyterian is because their focus of church leadership surrounds itself around the role of an elder. So we have presbyteros. Presbyteros was a term that Jewish uh, Christians would have been well aware of because they knew of that back in the Old Testament times because the, church, um, the nation of Israel was led by a group of elders. This term meant older. It meant mature. It meant one who could be emulated in their faith and their life. And so the first thing we need to understand about your elders is that they must be men of maturity. Number two, we see the title of a responsibility that is given. He goes on and he says, as an elder, as a presbyteros, he now speaks to them 
And he says, I want you to shepherd. It's the word poimino, which is the word that we get pastor from. Now, I want to make this clear. Pastor and elder are synonymous. They're the same, they're the different titles for the same person. Uh, they don't mean anything different. Elder is the type of man that you're looking for. Pastor is the responsibility that he has. And poimino literally means one who nourishes, one who cares, one who tends to the people under his oversight. And this is the role that elders have. Our job is to feed, to teach, to minister, to counsel, to love, to weep with those who weep, to laugh with those who laugh. It is our job to help uh, mend broken hearts and broken relationships, just as a good shepherd would his sheep. But the final word that he goes is one of authority. Notice what he says. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers. And this word is episkopoi. And we get our English word episcopal, thus the Episcopal Church, that has a church leadership that focuses in on overseers. And this job is to rule, to lead, to guide, and it has the idea of oversight, inspection, and it literally means to look upon. And so we have these three titles, this title of maturity, this title of responsibility, and this title of authority. Now before I go on, and, and start explaining how all these things fit together, I would be remiss not to stop and tell you that it is our understanding, the clear understanding of Scripture, and this is going to be politically incorrect for many people here, that eldership is something that only can be held by a man. Now, within our culture, we say, how can that be? We've got women that are running for uh, political office. We have people running for governors and senators and, and for president. And so, Tim, obviously they're a lot smarter and more articulate than you are. Why wouldn't we let them serve? The simple answer, and I don't have a lot of time to deal with it, but the simple answer is because that's what the Bible says. And you can argue that, you can try to explain it away, but every time the term elder or the role of overseer is spoken about, first of all, it is always speaking about it in the, in the masculine sense. He, 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 him, all of those are always pointed towards men. We say, well, that's a first century thing and, and it should change. No, we don't look at God's word as being something that we sit there and address one thing because of its timing in one place, but we don't listen to it in another place. Because we could say, we don't need to have elders. That's what they used then, but we could just have you know, CEOs or, or any kind of title we want. But it translates itself all the way through our time. The second thing that we need to recognize is that this is not saying, and please hear me, that men and women are not equal. Okay, this is of great importance. And you say, well, how can that be? There are things that uh, I can't do uh, that you're saying that a man can do. Women will say that. And I would say, look at the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Within that, they're all equal. But they have different roles and responsibilities to the point that Jesus says, hey, I don't even know the time of my second coming, but the Father does. But Jesus is God, and they are equal. And man and woman, and, and I will say this without any concern, uh, my wife and I are equal in the sight of God. My wife and I are equal when it comes to our calling by God. But the way we live that out is very different. And as a man, I have the opportunity and I have the calling, some men do, uh, of being an elder. Now, if you really struggle with that and that's something you want to investigate and think that I'm just blowing smoke, then I would have you go to a website entitled The Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood and you can read to your heart's content there, the Biblical Councilhood of Manhood and Womanhood, which deals with this subject matter through and through. But this isn't what the intent of Titus's writing is, so I don't want to invest a lot of time there. But it's for men to serve in this way. Okay, so we've established that. Now, let's deal with maturity, responsibility, and authority. We know who the man is supposed to look like. He's supposed to be mature. Then he has a responsibility of shepherding and ruling. Now, where do we find out how those things work? I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew for a moment. Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. And uh, I know you're going to think that it's, it's odd, but we're going to talk through the Christmas story a little bit. And, uh, and it's going to help us understand the role of elders. 
Now, I have to say, I've preached on this subject matter before, and if you're looking for more information on what is addressed, uh, about a year ago, in the month of October, I preached a message called, Who Leads the Church? And uh, you can go there, and they have a, on our website, villagebible.org, and you can read uh, the outline as well as listen to the, uh, to the sermon, and you can hear more about this. But I want to just address a couple things here that I address there. But first, let's look at Matthew chapter 2. I wanted to know, is there a time where shepherding and ruling are talked about in the same breath? And they do, twice in the, in the Bible. Once in the Old Testament, Micah chapter 5, and second time, it's repeated in Matthew chapter 2. Now, we know the context here is the wise men have come to Bethlehem. They're looking for Jesus. King Herod hears about this. He hears about the star in the sky. He becomes distressed, verse 3 says. And he calls all the chief priests together. He asks, where is this Christ to be born? They said, in Bethlehem, verse 5 says, in Judea, they reply, for this is what the prophet Micah had written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. But for out of you will come a ruler, there's the authority, the ruler who will be the shepherd, there's the responsibility, of my people Israel. And so this is what I want us to walk away from. The job of your elders is, number one, to be like Jesus. We're to be like Jesus. Our lives are to look like Jesus. We are to be uh, under shepherds of the chief shepherd Jesus, is what Peter tells us. And so we need to be mature. We need to look like Jesus. But we have a twofold responsibility. Number one, it is to shepherd God's people, and number two, it is to rule God's people. Now, the reason why that has to be there, I want you to throw up the next screen there, uh, slide, and it's the following. The reason why these are needed is because responsibility minus authority equals anarchy. What that means is this, if we shepherd as your leaders, but don't have authority, then you can do whatever you want. Let me explain that in my family life. My job as a parent is to meet the needs of all my kids, to feed them, to clothe them, to bathe them, to to take care of them, uh, to love them, to help them, educate them, all of that. But if that's my job and I have no authority, I can serve them, but I can't tell them what to do. Can I assure you what would happen in the Badal household if that was the case? There would be havoc. There would be chaos. Now, they would expect that I would do all this stuff, but the moment I say, hey, wait a minute, you can't talk to your mom that way, they say, who are you? All you're supposed to do is feed me. You're supposed to come and kiss my owie when I fall, but don't tell me how I'm going to treat your wife. Get out of here with that. And because of that, if we have leaders in the church who just have a responsibility but don't carry authority, you'll have anarchy. And there's a lot of churches that they have leaders that are not given the opportunity or don't take the opportunity to be the real God-given authority in a church, and because of that, there's utter anarchy. I I was helping with a a church uh, that is within our region, and the elders had called and said, it's falling apart. Every time we have a meeting, all chaos breaks out. And I talked with them with this, and I said, well, number one, are you doing what you're supposed to, shepherding the people, and there were some issues there, but are you instilling the the authority? Are you speaking and saying, hey, we have been called and we have been given the task of being in charge, and you may not like that and you may struggle with that, but that's our job, and because of that, we do that because we don't want anarchy. But notice, you do that, you get anarchy, but notice what happens if you flip them. If you have authority minus responsibility when it comes to elders, you'll have tyranny. What that means is if your elders just tell you what to do and just sit there and say, you do this, you do that, and you say, but what about this or what about, and you say, don't worry about that, I'm in charge, I'm the boss. And if all we do is dictate to you what you're supposed to do and never meet your needs, never love on you and minister to you and care for you and nurture you, then you have tyranny. And there are churches where that is going on. And that's a big reason why elder government gets a huge black eye. Because people think that eldering is all about authority and that it involves no responsibility. 
And so we have to balance that. And so throw up the last one there. And that is that elders must have balance between responsibility and authority. And when they do, the church will involve itself in stability and safety. And so what that means is the job of your nine elders that you have right now is to love you, is to minister to you, is to care for you, is to take care of your needs, to teach you. But I will add this. It is also their job to oversee the direction of not only the church, but your lives. You are under our care. And for us as Americans, we struggle with that, we fight against that, but that's what the Scripture says. It's clear. We are to respect our elders, the Scripture says, because they have oversight of our lives, 1 Peter says. And so we need to, as elders, strike that balance. Now, I will say, have we done the best job with it? I don't know. It would be up to you guys to really answer that. But I think if you've, I've been an elder now for, for over eight years, and I know that that has been the desire of every elder team that I've been a part of. Balance that. And sometimes we ebb and flow back and forth. Now, here's the thing that we see with Jesus. Jesus, when he came, focused more in on his shepherding, his responsibility, than he did on his authority. And there will be seasons of time where your elders will do more shepherding than they will do directing authority. But also understand, because Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He mended the broken. He loved on people. He forgave sins. But he also carried a great deal of authority. He casted out demons. He called chief priests and leaders to task. And yet what we know is, is in his first coming, shepherding was a key focus. But in the second coming of Jesus Christ, if you've ever studied that, there's very little shepherding going on. It is all about Christ's kingship and his authority and the balance that elders need to have because they're following Jesus in the maturity category is that they're responsible of shepherding the people and they recognize the authority that comes with it. And so that's the balance and elders need to do that. And so this is the role, this is the, the, the man or the men that uh, Titus is to appoint in each one of the churches. Now let's get back to our text again. Now once we've established who these guys are and what they are supposed to do, now we need to pick out the right guys. Now notice, he says, okay, that which was left unfinished, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now in verse 6, he goes on and he says, an elder must be blameless. The next thing we need to understand, and I'm going to move through these quickly, is that an elder must have a consuming call from God. Write that in your outlines. An elder must have a consuming call from God. He says they need to be blameless. Now, how is he uh, to uh, be blameless in all of those ways? Well, number one, we need to first of all establish that this consuming call involves some things. First, first Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 says, If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he aspires or he strives towards a noble thing. And so we have to understand that any elder who's going to serve must have, he must have a desire to serve God as an elder. Write that in your outlines. He needs to desire to serve God as an elder. He has to aspire it. Now some will say, well, isn't that a bit proud for a man to aspire to a role, to an office? Uh, one commentator said it's no different than a husband who longs to show his wife affection. There's nothing wrong with that. It's acceptable. It's totally fine. Now, if he longs for that uh, showing of affection to another woman in any way, he's gone out of bounds. And so what God is saying is, is, okay, if you desire to lead my church and lovingly shepherd it and minister to it and give it oversight according to my guidelines, then you desire a noble thing. And so this is who Titus is supposed to go look for. There to be men who desire to serve in the role. We can't force guys to serve as elders. We have to allow God to bring the desire to them. Number two there, they need to be devoted to the job description for elders. There's a lot of times where elders or men will desire to serve as an elder because it's a place of prominence. Look at me, I'm an elder. I'm an important guy. I have important things to worry about. Other people like to be elders because it brings them a seat at the table. 
they get to decide what happens in the church. The problem with that is if you take away the responsibility that is given to elders and you're just making decisions, you're a lot like my children. My boys love to be in charge. They hate the responsibility of doing anything when it comes to being in charge, but they love to say what's going to be done and how it's going to be done. But they don't like the responsibility of it. Many, many years ago, when I was growing up in this church, there was a a conflict at a a church meeting, and a man got up who wasn't on the leadership team, and this is years ago, so don't try to pick out who the person is. Uh, This was years ago. And he said, I don't like how you guys are doing things. I want to be an elder. And one of the elders said, okay, well, that's a, it's a noble thing to aspire. Why do you want to be an elder? You've brought it up publicly. Why do you want to do it? He says, because I don't like how this church is being run, and I want to do it my way. Uh, as, a little, as a young person, I was probably in my early teens, I even knew that guy was out of line. And the problem is, is that a lot of people want to serve as elders, but they don't want the responsibility. Howard Hendricks said, you want to serve as an elder, you better get used to the smell of cheap manure. You want to be a shepherd of God's flock. It isn't about making decisions. I will be honest with you, 20% of our eldering here is about making decisions. 80% of it is ministering to you. It's how it is. There's not a lot of decisions to make, especially at the size of the church that we are. I mean, yes, we talk about budgets. Yes, we talk about, you know, how the church service is going to be run and things like that. But a lot of it is, is sent off to people to do the ministry. Uh, I don't plan the worship services. We have people that plan them. Uh, we have a stewardship team that oversees the finances. So the elders aren't doing a lot of decision-making, as some may think. But what we are doing is a ton of counseling. What we are doing is doing a lot of mediation, spending time with people that are fighting with one another. What we do a lot of is teaching. In fact, the vast majority of my time is dedicated towards studying uh, for teaching, either teaching at this uh, setting, teaching in my uh, Sunday night setting, or teaching in a small group. And so a lot of it's that, but very little of it is, is dealing with, if you will, church business. People say, what do you do at your meetings? We try to help people who are struggling. One of the things that we're trying to do right now, to be quite honest with you, is we have a lot of people that are out of work that are really struggling. And what the elders are trying to figure out is, we know $12,000 isn't going to do anything, and so we know that we can't come up with money. We're a church. We're not a bank, but we want to find real tangible ways to minister to people in their time of great need. And so we're trying to find creative ways. We're praying about creative ways to do that. That isn't, that isn't the authority kick. That's the responsibility thing because we know people are hurting. And that's what we're trying to do. So if you want to be an elder, it involves the entire task, not just making decisions, but shepherding and ministering to the people. Finally, it involves being a part of a diverse group of elders. Notice in verse 5, he is to point elders, it's in the plural, in every town. In fact, in Acts 14.23, Paul and Barnabas are given the task of appointing elders, plural, in every church. I want to make a couple things uh, very clear here. Number one, you are led not by a man, but by a group of men. Uh, Some people think that I'm the senior pastor. I am not the senior pastor. We don't have a senior pastor at this church. And one of the reasons why, a big reason, is you can't find senior pastor in the Bible. And so we always want to be very careful that we don't start adding titles that we don't see in the scriptures. But the other thing is, is because it's a safeguard, it's a safeguard from one person ruling the church. And so I serve, even though I have the biggest mouthpiece of all the elders, and that's both biologically and (laughs) metaphorically, I serve as one of the elders. And I have just as much authority or just as little authority as any of the other elders that are around that table. And our job is to model to you, the church, of a group of people who are different. We have educated men. We have uneducated men. We have men that serve on staff. We have men that don't serve on staff. We have men that have been Christians for uh, a super long time. We have Christians that uh, maybe are newer to the faith in, in regards to that. We have people... 
upon our elder team uh, that uh, differ on theological things. Some agree on one set of things but disagree on another. We have vegetarians on our uh, church board. We have meat eaters. We have guys that love rock and roll music. We have guys that absolutely hate rock and roll music. We got all different kinds of likes and dislikes. But one thing we have to do is come to a consensus when it comes to leading this church. And one thing I hope that you walk away from as you watch the elders serve is that you don't see strife amongst the elders. One, one time, at one point, someone said, you know, it really bugs me that you guys are always on the same page. I said, praise the Lord. And it's not because we all believe the same way or, or have only one way of thinking. But we interact and we work and we meditate on the scriptures and, and we don't hold ourselves higher than we ought, but we always put the, those other ones above us. And we spend time gathering together, praying and considering thoughts to work together to make a decision. And the reason why we do that is to show you how a group of diverse individuals can still bring glory and honor to God, even at times that they don't agree. And so when we talk about coming to a consensus, we come to a consensus, and that may mean some compromise. That may mean me giving up some of my personal held beliefs on one particular thing for the betterment of the entire church. And I'm going to say this, and this may, may bother some people. I believe that the reason why this church in the last eight years has experienced the kind of stability that it has, that it did not years beforehand, is because I believe for the first time, by God's grace, we finally got this elder thing figured out. And you can disagree with me and all of that, that's fine. And I'll even separate myself from that because you guys have elected good, godly men to serve you that love you, that balance uh, the idea of responsibility with the issue of authority. Now notice what he continues to go on with. Point number three, and I'm running out of time, so I need to get moving here. And we've talked about this, but it is key for an elder to have a consistent character in all areas of life. Verses 6 and through 8 say an elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to charges of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. In your bulletin are my notes to each one of those things. And I want to address a couple of them, but I didn't want to go so fast that you miss them. And so I have what elders should not be, where, Titus start, or where Paul starts for Titus, and then what elders should be. And each of them have uh, just a paragraph about each of those things. But let me address what needs to be consistent. First of all, he needs to be consistent, uh, first of all, morally. Write that down in your outlines. Domestically, he needs to be that socially. And he needs to be that spiritually. Now let's break some of these things down. The first thing that we need to understand is that Paul tells Titus twice he is to be blameless. Blameless does not mean perfection. But it is the act of the sum total of all the qualities in the elder. So that when you look at a man, the word blameless, uh, 1 Timothy, it says that you are above reproach, means that as you look at an elder... There's no accusation that could stick to him. And so when someone says, uh, hey, I, I heard that Tim, Tim is using all kinds of bad language and all of that, you say, you know, how can that be? I've, I've been a part of Tim's life. I've seen him, and I've seen him mad, and I've seen him happy, and I just have never seen him use bad language. That's just not, that is just not where it's at. I've got to share a funny story because I've never never told this, uh, and this is, you know, I always say that I was tough on my parents, and I will one day pay for it. I'm starting to. Um, <laughs> we don't like Noah using the word fat, okay? And uh, I called someone a fathead. And uh, we went to dinner, and the people that we went to dinner with are in the room right now. I'm not going to point them out. But Noah said that my dad uses the F word, And so, family, you, you know what, who, who you are. We had dinner with you a couple weeks ago, and Noah said that, and we couldn't figure out, we're like, what in the world are you saying, kid? 
they don't use bad words, and the damage was done. And so we get in the car, and we're like, well, first of all, what does he know, and what doesn't he know? And, and he says, use that fat. And I said, oh, geez. But that's the issue. Consistency. Is, is it something that someone uh, it lives one way at one time or another way another time? If you were to watch me walk throughout my week, you're going to learn a couple things about it. Number one, I'm not perfect. You're going to know that. But I would hope that if you interacted with those around me that watch me from Monday through Saturday, they would be able to say, I see consistency in his life. He's a believer. One of the greatest things I love to do is I get an opportunity to cater um, down at Yorkville High School. And, of course, Al Gonerman is a teacher at Yorkville High School. has been there for almost 40 years. And I always love to talk with people and, and say, I know Al Gonerman. He, he goes to my church. And I've never worried. And I've always loved it when people say, what a good man he is. He, what, a, what a good guy. I've never heard them say, you know, he's always flirting with the other girl teachers there, or, or you know, he's a, he's a gossip, or, or this, that, or the other. He doesn't say anything like that. The only time I've heard a bad thing about Al is a kid that said he hated the class because he failed it. I was like, that's fair enough, you know, it's, that's it. But, but Al's a blameless guy, not perfect. He's not anybody who loves math can't be perfect, but, but he's not perfect, but he's blameless, now, a couple of things that we need to bring up, just as a way of importance here, a couple of things that we need to address. First of all, it says, an elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife. I've shared this before, and I'll share it again. I hate that translation in our text. It never talks about being a husband in the original Greek. Literally in the Greek, it says he is a one-woman man. The reason why I don't like the husband of but one wife is because then it demands that a man be married. And so single men can't serve as, as elders. Well, that would mean that Paul couldn't have served because Paul was a single man. That's not what Paul is saying. Number two, what it articulates is that it articulates that if a man has had a wife but then lost her through death, he can't get married again. And the Bible is clear that a man can have a second wife as a result of death, and there would be nothing that would keep him from serving as an elder. The other thing that I don't like about it is it takes away the real important thing, and that is not the marital qualification, but the idea of what his marriage looks like. He has eyes for one woman, his wife. It means that his relationship with his wife is that which can be emulated by other marriages. And so that, that begs the question, could a divorced man serve as an elder? And from this text, and our understanding is yes, he possibly could. He could serve as an elder. Because nowhere in the Bible does it say that an elder can't be divorced. But we have to be very careful, and we have to, on every case-by-case basis, just as we do on every other thing, to look at an elder's life and ask the question, is this man, and has this man uh, been a one-woman man for a period of time that marks his character? Now, some will disagree with me, and that's not my, only my position, but it's the position of the elder team. And so if we were to ever have that happen, uh, we would want to investigate it, work through it, and then it would be the job of the church to uh, appoint that individual to the role of eldering. Now, the other thing that you need to understand about these qualifications is they're found in the present tense. Meaning what Paul is saying is, Paul is saying, is this man today what I'm asking him to be? And what that means is, it doesn't mean that he's been perfect his whole life. I have been a lover of money. In my younger years, I loved money because money bought me things. And what I've learned as I've matured is what money brings is a lot more trouble a lot of the time. I have found myself at times, especially as a young man, pursuing dishonest gains, especially as a teenager. It's not that looking back and saying, what has this guy done, and let's just pull up his whole life file to do it, but how is this man living today? And I would add that the present idea there is that there's enough of a track record to build a character. Can you look at the men that serve and say, this man is reputable in these ways. Another thing that comes up is the issue of um, children. It says since, uh, let's see here, a husband of of one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Stick with me for five more minutes and I'll be done. Here's the thing. I don't like the word believe in the NIV there because it's being used in the original Greek as an adjective. 
And it is men, it's children, men should have children that are faithful. And the reason why that is of great importance is, number one, it is not the role of the mother or the father or anyone else to be held accountable for the spiritual well-being of anyone. My job, I will not stand on the judgment day and stand and God will say, hey, Amanda sinned, what, are you, what did you do about it? He's not going to say Noah, Joshua, and, uh, and uh, Luke. Oh boy, I can't remember. <laughs> and Luke, you know, they didn't come to know the saving knowledge of me. It's your fault, Tim. Now, God can get me that I wasn't a loving father. He can get on me that uh, I, I may not have shared the gospel with them. But what he cannot get me on is that I didn't get them saved or not. Because the Bible says that it's not my job to bring people to being born again. But that the Spirit of God does that by the will of God. And so we need to be careful that we don't hold leaders to the role that says, well, your children all have to believe. What it literally means in the Greek is that they are faithful, and notice what the text says. They are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. What that means is their children know their father is in charge, and their father is the authority in their life, and that they are uh, they're accountable to that. And so why is that? Because how can you be in a, in a family relationship where your children are running wild and then step into a church where you have to lead and minister and think that you're going to be able to have a different scenario? And so the job is, is that kids need to be, children need to be, not wild, not disobedient, but faithful to their father's leadership and authority in the family. And it would go even on to this, I would say that from what I understand of this text, and there's differing opinions, but I would say that this involves children that are within the home, not children that are outside of the home. And the reason why I bring this up is because we have had over the years men that have said, I cannot serve because I believe of a flawed understanding of Scripture. They say, one of my kids is not saved. Well, if that's the case, and I don't mean to be crass about this, but does that mean you were a great parent and that your great parenting raised up one great child but not another? And there are brothers and sisters in our midst that are struggling. They've got one child that just loves the Lord and another child that right now just doesn't want anything to do with the Lord. Did they parent differently? Did they say, oh, well, I'm going to take care of you. You're the saved one, but you're not the saved one? They've loved them. They've raised them up in the way that's honoring and, and uh, effective before the Lord. And we have to release our children and release all of those whom we serve. And the reason why is because elders are going to minister to both those who believe and those who don't. And so we need to be careful in regards to that. One more final one there, and then I'm going to close this thing out, is, is that uh, it will come up. I'm sure an elder must not be given to drunkenness. We as elders uh, believe that what that's meaning is, is you can't be drunk as an elder. Does that mean an elder can drink wine? Yes, that means an elder can drink wine. Does that mean all our elders drink wine? No, that doesn't mean that. But what it means is, is that we as elders must be self-controlled. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say you can't touch an alcoholic beverage. But what it does say is you can never be drunk. And it says, hey, the guys that you bring on as elders cannot be drunkards in any way, shape, or form. And so, moving on past point number four, what then are we supposed to do? Well, there's two things that I want us to walk away from. Number one, to our elders, and there's some in this service today. Elders, I want you to take these points as I take them and ponder them. Serve the Lord well. Minister to the flock under your care. Love them, care for them. If it has to, sacrifice for them. Show them the great important things that they are. Ezekiel 34, 4 tells us to strengthen the weak, heal the sick, bind up the wounded, bring back the strays, and search for the lost. Elders, if we do that, God will be glorified in our work. For everyone else, Here's a list that you can do. Number one, use the qualifications that I've laid before you as qualifications for your own life. You don't have to be an elder to be a one-woman man. You don't have to be an elder just to be a one-woman man, if you will, as the ladies are out there. You don't have to do the things that are listed there and say, well, I'm not an elder, so I don't have to worry about it. Make those qualifications your own life. Number two, men pursue the role of eldering. 
If a man desires to be an overseer, he desires a noble thing. Pursue it. Number three, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13 tells us, respect your leaders. You may not like everything that we do. You may not agree with everything that we do, and that's okay. God's given you a mind. God's given you a heart. God's given you an opportunity to discern his will. But the Bible makes it clear to respect your leaders. Number four, submit. That's a difficult word for us to hear. Submit, and I will add, submit to their godly leadership. As they follow the Lord and as they call you to follow the Lord, the scripture says in in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, that you are to submit to those that are overseeing you. And here's the reason why. Submission means to know your proper rank. And the reason why you need to submit is because as elders, and this is probably one of the scariest passages of scripture that I have, is that the Bible says, as an elder, I will give an account on how I led as an elder. And that's scary. And you think that, you know, oh, he's just doing it, or, she, you know, they're doing it because they just want the power. Let me tell you something. If that's our desire, the Lord will take care of it on the day of judgment. He says, you will be held accountable for how you lead. So your job is to submit. My job is to lead well. Both of us will be held accountable on how we submit or how we lead. And finally, pray for us. 1 Thessalonians 5.25. Pray for us often. Uh, Encourage us. It's not always easy, but we do it. I told uh, the congregation beforehand or in the first service that eldering is the worst job that anybody could grow to love. It's like parenting. Parenting, man, sometimes we want to just pull all our hair out of our head and say, this is for the birds. But we wouldn't give it up for the world, would we? Eldering's tough. And eldering a lot of times goes without thanks. And even though it's difficult, and even though it's hard, I know that the nine elders we have say we wouldn't give it up for the world because God's up to great things. God bless you. Let's pray and close our time. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for your word. And Lord, we have been taught some things on what we need to set straight when it comes to our leadership. And Lord, again, I pray for our elders. Lord, give them wisdom. Give us insight to know how to lead like Jesus led. That we would love as we lead. And as we lead, that we would love Lord, that balance is so needed in our world today. In our world where leaders are questioned about their character and and their uh, integrity, Lord, I pray that you would protect our leadership team from those things. Allow us to be the men that you have called us to be. Grace us with that, with the strength and the protection to turn away from sin and to be blameless, not only in your eyes, but in the eyes of all those who look upon us. Lord, I also pray for the congregation. Lord, I pray that they would continue to love and encourage and, and, uh, and heed the words of Scripture that call them to respect and submit. And Lord, it's not easy. It's, it's very difficult to follow. But Lord, I pray that we would make their, their work easy so that they can follow without any uh, concern of, of bad treatment or concern of, of authoritarian leadership, Lord. And that, Lord, that as, as a result of that, they would make the elder's job, a joy and not a burden. Lord, as I close, I want to thank you and the congregation that they have made the elder's job a great joy. What a joy it is to serve, to love on and minister to this group of people. So Lord, I pray that you would allow us to continue to see this health and vitality in our church as we continue to set things straight so that we can bring glory to you. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.